Hey, this is Kelly Whiffen. Thanks for joining us today for the Encounter Church podcast. We all want to live lives of better decisions and fewer regrets. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, we believe the next 30 minutes can be one of the most helpful and hopeful parts of your week. At the end of the podcast, stay tuned for a couple messages. Thanks again for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, That thing stresses me out every time, I swear. It doesn't get old. I'm like, man, I'm already stressed out. Um, But it's such a good video emotional capture to this series called Spent. This idea of how do we move past just those places in our lives where we're just done. We're spent. And sometimes those feel like little seasons. They're days. They're you know, maybe just kind of in between a deadline. But for some of us, we can experience a spent life and it doesn't feel like a life season. It feels like a life sentence. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it has something to do in your romantic life or maybe with your schedule and your calendar. But the whole month, we've tried to unpack and to kind of lean into this question of how do we move away from a life that's spent? And um, I'm so glad that you're here today, because today is one of those, I think, one of the most practical um, messages in this entire series in an area where many of us understand what it's like to be spent. But before I jump in, I just want to say on this Memorial Day, if you're a veteran and you're in this room, um, if you are a veteran engaging with us offline, podcast, whatever, we just want to say thank you. There's a really moving picture. Yes. There was this incredibly moving picture um, yesterday that was circulating on the internet around the tomb of the unknown soldier in the midst of Washington, D.C., all the storms that were coming in, and there's this, like, just beautiful, somber um, shot of the soldiers, the the battalion that guards the tomb of the unknown soldier, um, bending down to place an American flag at the tomb. And you see all the wind and the rain in the shot. It's just this beautiful picture. And the soldier um, isn't, it's like it's not even there. And uh, we just want to pause because we recognize it's easy to take for granted freedom. And, uh, and there's a lot of us who have lost loved ones, who have sacrificed, and some even serving right now um, at Encounter Church, who um, have given and served their, their kind of amazing sacrificial duty in places that most of us would never pay money to go on vacation. And so just wanted to say thank you before we dive into our message today. Um, we're so grateful for you. Um, I came across this interesting study. It's, it kind of pops up from time to time, probably because it's one of the most fascinating um, longitudinal studies that have ever been done on um, human beings, period. Longitudinal studies are where they kind of follow individuals for long periods of time. Uh, they're rare because they're expensive. It takes a lot of money to engage with someone for decades and follow the results and to keep asking the questions. And, and actually, this region is famous for this specific longitudinal study that came out of Harvard. It started around 1938. A group of sophomores um, going through uh, the college there were kind of pegged, and those 268 sophomores became the base for this study that would um, continue to unfold. In fact, it still goes on today, over 80 years into the journey. And what this study has shown us has been really fascinating. 
Um, they've continued to add to this study. They've, they've supplemented it with additional control groups for those who like research throughout the last 50, 60 years. Um, and they've kind of been tracking it. John F. Kennedy, who was actually part of this group, um, is you know, just one of many. Washington Post editor um, was a part of it. Alcoholics were a part of it. Criminals were a part of it. Executives were a part of it. As this study unfolded, what was amazing was the kind of the wide um, subsection of humanity that just played out in front of them. And what they were really trying to understand in this study is they're like, let's, let's follow these 268 people and see if we can learn anything about a life that leads to happiness and health. That was the aim. It's like, we want to see what makes a happy, healthy life. And as they begin to track, now 16 of them are the only ones left. They've pretty much exhausted their data set. And a few years back, they started kind of conclusively stating some of the observations. And it was this, that the thing that mattered most across the study around happiness and health. In fact, the single greatest predictor, that when they were in their 80s, they went back and said, is what we've determined, is what we've observed, was it even predictive? So they went back in the, when they were 50s, they looked at the data, and they realized, yes, the presence of this one thing in the, in the life of someone in their 50s guaranteed that they would live longer and that they would be healthier. And it was being bald. I'm joking. I just wanted to see if you were listening. Some of you are like, for real? Baldness? Yes, baldness. It's the key to happiness, in fact. It's the secret of life. Now, what they actually found um, was if in your 50s you had strong, healthy relationships, then in your 80s you, you would have been healthier, not just physically but mentally. This isn't just romantic relationships for some of you. are like, well, this is – no, no. This was across the board. If you had healthy relationships in your life, the reality is, is that you were healthier, happier, and you live longer. Now, it probably didn't take the millions of dollars that it took to do that study to get to that conclusion, because on one hand, it's not that profound. I would argue that the challenge around healthy relationships is not that we know we need them. It's that we're not sure how to get them, right? And yes, I mean, you already got it. I mean, it's like... <laughs> Dude, I'm struggling. I've got a seven-year-old. I mean, this is serious. Like, uh, my seven-year-old, the biggest struggle in the Causey household right now is our seven-year-old trying to figure out what his healthy relationships look like. Because even at six and seven, unhealthy relationships and mean girls are the norm. Right? I mean, so, yes, the research was profound. Healthy relationships live, lead to a longer, healthier life. But the burning question is, how do you get there? Because many of us know what it's like to be spent in a relationship. And what I want to do today is look at a passage, kind of a surprising passage, if I'm being honest. In fact, when my wife saw the, the verse that I was teaching from this week, she went, for real? And I said, hold up. There's a lot there. Let me get to it. She's like, there better be, Right. It's this surprising proverb that, unfortunately, I'm sure at some point, um, I say this with love, ridiculous religious people have probably used it to, to hit women over their head with it. But 
this proverb is a profound proverb that unfortunately um, its simplicity betrays how profound it is. And what I want to do over the next 25 minutes is I want to unpack this proverb. I want to expand on this because you have to remember that this was written 3,000 years ago and there's always a context for when it's written, for what's going on. For those who go through the 112, which is our spiritual growth class here, one of the things that I teach when we talk about how to read the Bible is we teach two rules. And the first rule is context is king. It's critical to understand what's going on. And so the passage today comes from a book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs was written about 3,000 years ago. It was written by a man who was a king. And its purpose, a bulk of the Proverbs present, not all of them, but a bulk of the Proverbs present in the book of Proverbs were intended to prepare his son to be king one day. And that's its stated purpose. I, Solomon, want to prepare my son to be the king of Israel 3,000 years ago. And so naturally what happens is there's a lot of Proverbs around things like money and things like relationships. But one critical relationship to this son would have been his future queen. And so Solomon has a lot of Proverbs, both positive and negative, about how to pick and how to facilitate a relationship with that future queen. Partially because Solomon had a problem with women to begin with. He had over a thousand women in his life, right? Like what in the world? 3,000 years ago. That's crazy. Okay? It doesn't matter if it's 3,000 years ago. It's still crazy. But he had a 1,000 women in his life. Um, hundreds of them were wives, and the rest were concubines. So dude spent a lot of time with women. <laughs> and he came to some general observations that surprisingly had a lot of insight for someone who didn't always have it figured out with the women. And, and he writes this proverb to his son to prepare him. And in the midst of this proverb is some really helpful advice on how we can have relationships that lead to healthier, fuller lives. He writes these words to his son. He says, better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. Now you can see why my wife said, for real, are you trying to say something? Like, no, sweetie, you're the very opposite. You are like my oasis in the desert. Okay? Seriously. You're my oasis, babe. I'm sure there's a song somewhere in there. I will find it, and I'll come back and dedicate it to you. All right? Um, because I've had the privilege of living in an oasis for um, almost a decade and a half now. Our anniversary is this week, and I love her more than when I first met her. She is incredible. She really is an oasis. Yes. Some of your kids get loved on by her. Some of you work with her every single Sunday. She's phenomenal. And, and so I was like, girl, you know that, ain't you? That's everybody else, you know. But um, I, said, I said, no, isn't that crazy? Like that proverb, um, because my wife grew up in a little bit more religious household than I did, um, that proverb, she heard it growing up, but it was used in kind of a derogatory way around women. It'd be used as a leverage, like don't be a nagging wife. Don't be a nag. And I said, oh, girl, this is going to be good today because we're going to like, oh, you're going to like this because I'm about to tear that proverb up 
and we're going about the 3,000 3, year of this thing. So we are all on the same page of what this thing really means because Proverbs were meant to be memorized and they were meant to be reflected upon. Um, Solomon really enjoyed doing this with his son. He would give him a, a fact that on the surface it may almost seem obvious or um, counterintuitive or silly or like, duh. But the word choice he would use in Hebrew, because this is written in Hebrew, often as you reflected on it, the profundity of it would kind of come out. It was like, it's like giving someone an orange when they asked for something to drink, right? I mean, yeah, I've given you something to drink, but you got to work to get it out. This is what Solomon do because he knows he's preparing a king. He's like, you need to be able to think differently than your peers think. So when you ask me for something to drink, here's an orange, figure it out, work it, squeeze it. And eventually you'll get the juice out of it. And this is exactly what this proverb is. It's an orange. But when you work it, what comes out is refreshing orange juice. That does show you how to build an oasis instead of living in a desert. It's found in the words. It's actually, the words are the way. It can sound on the surface that this is just simply a warning. If you meet a nagging woman, son, run from her. Go to the desert. It's better there. But it's not a warning. It's a way. He's showing him something. He's handing him an orange. And the way that you get that is not in the English language. The English language struggles to translate the two Hebrew words that Solomon uses for his son. This isn't about husbands and wives. To be honest with you, this is about relationships in general. It just happens to be the context of a father talking to his son about understanding how to build a dynamic relationship with the future queen. But its principle translates across the board. And the two words, I think, are the challenge. Quarrelsome and nagging are two words that, first of all, even in the English, you and I struggle with. When's the last time you used quarrelsome or nagging? Nagging is one of the, I love words. Um, I have to, like my wife, when we go out, I'll see a fun word. And I'm like, isn't that such a fun word? And she's like, what, what are you talking about? I'm like, we were in a restaurant one time and it's like, uh, like a Danish. And I was like, oh my goodness, Jenny, do you realize like if you were like in a European setting and you screamed, don't eat the Danish. Like some people would think there's like cannibal tribes wanting to eat Danish people and other people would hear it and think, oh, dessert pastry. I was like, I love words. And the word nag is one of those kind of words. It just sounds bad. Like I don't have to know the definition of nag to know it's a bad, it just sounds like, it's like nag. <laughs> like if someone walked up to me and said, you're a nag, and I had no clue what the definition is, I'd probably punch them because I know it feels bad. It's just a fun word, but it's not a word you and I use. And unfortunately, even the way it's used is wrong with what he's saying. So let's jump into the two words. The first word is quarrelsome. But in the Hebrew, the word is midyan. Midyan. That's the Hebrew word that Solomon uses. And the thing is, is like quarrelsome doesn't capture what midyan means. Midyan is a really strong word, right? Like when you're growing up and your parents are like, you know, you kind of like learn intuitively, like there's a system of escalation. When you hear your first name, like it's okay. 
But when you hear your full name and like kind of an elevated voice level, you know you're probably in trouble and you should start running. Like there's like, you just learn there are some words that are stronger. There's some ways of saying words that are stronger. And midyon is a strong word. It's an adversarial word. It, it literally kind of comes out to this way of understanding. It means to sit on the opposite side as an opposing force. You would midyon with an army. States, midyon. Providences, tribes, midyon. It means to sit on the opposite side as an opposing force. That's completely different than quarrelsome. I would take quarrelsome over midyon any day. Midyon blows you up. Quarrelsome you walk away from. And what he's trying to teach his son is like, son, here are two dynamics that can play out in relationship if you're not careful. It's that moment in a relationship where conversation turns into conflict. Where something silly like a dishwasher or an email or your car inspection sticker that hasn't been updated turns into mid-yawn where now it's like battle forces and warfare. It was words to begin with. Simple, small words, but now it's warfare. And in warfare, you don't care about the casualties. And this is what Midian looks like. You turn in your, your word exchange into a war zone. And I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who likes waking up in a war zone. And Solomon's trying to teach his son about war zones. In relationships, because they happen, don't they? They happen quick, they happen unexpectedly, and they happen over ridiculous things, and they happen in how you respond. This is the brilliance, right? This, this picture of standing on the opposite side as an opposing force kind of shows this kind of conflict adversarial stage. John Gottman, in modern research, is essentially 3,000 years later, unpacking what Solomon stated that day with the word midyon. John Gottman had noticed um, that in relationships, um, he calls them emotional bids. An emotional bid is when you, you whether it's romantic, non-romantic, whether in work or play, it's, it's a, a kind of a request is made. It may be something silly like, could you take out the trash? It's an emotional bid. And how you respond is critical. In fact, there are three ways that you respond to an emotional bid out of his research. You acknowledge it, you attack it, or you ignore it. So the trash example, um, take out the trash. I took it out last week. When are you going to do it? Okay, that's attack. Um, can you take out the trash? Walks through the apartment. Walks back through, grabs the keys. Can you, can you please take out the trash? Opens the door, walks down the steps. Okay, I guess not. That's ignore. <laughs> Acknowledge is yes. Yeah, I will. Thank you. Right? That sounds really simple, but I'm telling you, this is where we mess up. Right, let's just be real. All of us still are channeling our inner seven-year-old trying to figure out relationships. All right? We may look older. Some of us may have less hair, but we're still all seven-year-olds trying to figure out relationships when it comes down to it. 
I don't care how smart you are, how wealthy you are, how poor you are, where you came from, relationships are hard. And it begins in the response to the relationship. Because in your moment of response, you will do two, three things. You will acknowledge, you will attack, or you ignore. And the second two, attacking or ignore, are basically the same thing. In relationships, it turns out neutral is negative. In fact, John Gottman, what made this research so profound was that John Gottman, in the realm of romantic relationships and marriage, actually found that when the first is not present and the second two are the predominant kind of ways of responding, the ignoring or the attacking, and attacking can be subtle. It doesn't have to be full-out attack. It can be passive-aggressive attack. That when those last two are present, it's almost a guarantee of divorce. 83% chance of a divorce, if you see in a relational context, romantic speaking, if you see the play out of attack or ignore responses to emotional bids. And an emotional bid, I'm telling you, they're simple. They can be, hey, can I grab you a cup of coffee? It's in the subtle details. But for those who have a five to one ratio, this is why I love researchers because they figure this stuff out. If you have a five-to-one positive over negative or neutral, then you tend to be in that kind of like group of the healthiest relationships. The nuance of how you respond matters. This is what Solomon's trying to teach his son is mid-yawn. You want to avoid the moments when your conversation turns into conflict. And how do you do that? Well, here's the basic gist, and this is something my wife and I still do. This is something I do with my daughter, or I do in counseling sessions when it gets a little intense, is I acknowledge the who that is speaking to you. This is kind of like acknowledge the who that's speaking to you and address the what that they're talking about. Acknowledge the who, address the what. Because what happens with Midian is you lose the what and it becomes about the who. So, for example, let's say um, it was something small, like taking out the trash. And let's say, you know, we're arguing about this thing, and this is the thing that we started with. It's the trash. Can you take out the trash? Um, why, Why can't you do it? I'm busy. I'm running late to work. Can you just take out the trash? I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? Now, the response is probably not, you're right. Because I don't have anything I've got to get to either. So how about I take out the trash and you go do whatever you're doing because clearly your life is more important than my life. Well, I wasn't saying that my life is more important than your life, but I have a 9 a.m. And I don't think you have a 9 a.m. today. Well, I do have things to do. Well, I'm not saying you don't have things to do, but I'm just saying, could you do this one thing that you're already halfway through? I mean, if you pull the bag up and you tie it, you've almost done most of the work for it, right? And so what happens is this is going on, and then eventually the what kind of starts to disappear, and now it's about the who. Now we're attacking each other. Now you're lazy, And now you're bad at scheduling and managing things. I mean, it just... (laughs) Why? Because the what that you were originally talking about has kind of drifted into peripheral, and now it's the who. Thank you, B. Awesome. Thank you. Right? I mean, like, this is what we do. The who gets replaced by the what. And when that happens, warfare breaks out. Because now you feel personally attacked. 
Now you start to say things, and shortly after, that little bottle drifts away, and the what disappears, and the who is the thing. Next thing you know, you're talking about mother-in-laws, people's families. You're bringing up things from 17 years ago. I mean, like, that happens. It devolves so fast. It's mid-yawn. Right? You're no longer standing side by side dealing with the issue. You are standing opposing one another and you've become the issue. And in our relationship with Jenny, this is seriously something I'll do. When I sense that we're starting to lose sight of the what, I will physically reorient my body. So if we're sitting across the kitchen table and we're talking about finances, right? Because that's like the guaranteed way to keep the fire alive in any relationship. You know, and we're talking about finances across the table and, you know, and Barry White, you just turn it on because you know that's where it's headed because it's just that alive for the relationship. No, no, no. And it starts to get tense. What I have to do sometimes is I'm like, okay, this what is becoming a who. And so I'll take my chair and I'll move it and I'll sit beside my wife and I'll put the chair down and, and I'll grab a salt or a cup or whatever's on the table and said, hey, darling, remember we're team Causey. And what we're talking about is this bill and this expense, and how we can kind of get rid of it or adjust it. This is our problem. We're a team going to conquer this problem. You're not the problem. I'm not the problem. This is the problem. I just thought I should probably say that out loud because I feel like we were starting to treat each other like we're the problem, when in reality, it's the problem. And we are really good at conquering it's that come against us. Now, that subtle shift prevents the mid-yawn from happening. And now, all of a sudden, you are standing beside the person. And you can hit Barry White. Because now, you've completely disarmed something that could have blown up in your face. This is that mid-yawn concept of being able to be careful about the shift from the what to the who. And reorient it back that way. And that's why he's saying, look, you need to avoid the situation where the what becomes a who. And then he goes on and he says the second thing. He, he makes the point, you should also, the nagging word, right? This, and nagging wife. Like nagging, like I said, is such a really, really weird word. Now, for, if you happen to be a parent of a toddler, you have a perfect visual of what nagging is. It's mommy, 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 mommy. Daddy, 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 right? And you know that something in you snaps when you hear your name 17 times in a row. Because that should qualify as some violation of some Geneva Convention because it's torturous. Okay, so it, it is understandable that you snap on the inside. But this is not what this word is about. While that is bad, this is worse. And why the English translators chose the word nag, I'm not actually sure. Because nagging doesn't carry the weight of this word. It doesn't unpack the nuance of what's going on underneath the surface. You see, this word has nothing to do with the persistent annoyance of someone having a request with you. What this word actually points to, because it can be a noun or a verb. In this situation, it's, it's a noun. But in its verb form, it's actually a little bit clear in its intention, it means that emotion has been stirred up deeply inside of you because of something that's happened to you. To be nagging in the Hebrew is actually ka'as. 
That's the Hebrew word. And what it points to is a deep emotional hurt, not a persistent, irritating, annoying, repetitious. It's actually about the emotional hurt lingering underneath the surface of the relationship. If the first of his advice to his son is about how to reorient himself when conflict breaks out, this is more about being able to understand and to hear and to empathize in the first place when emotions spill out. You see, emotions are are a silly thing. Honestly, most of us never learn to deal with our emotions. Most of us don't even have a really good vocabulary for our emotions. Um, Maybe you grew up in a household and you would cry in the midst of being punished and your parents would say something, if you keep crying, I'll give you something to cry about, which is like the worst thing ever because it was like, you're like, but I can't stop crying. Like that makes no logical sense. What are you doing to me? Like, but I mean, you learn growing up, like stop the emotion. You better stop right now. If you don't stop crying, it's like there's actual way of speaking without moving your mouth. It's like we, when you get angry, we all become ventriloquist. It's amazing. Can't do it when you're not angry, but when you're angry, you can make it look like that cereal box is telling your child to stop crying, or you're going to give them something to cry about. And it's because like you've got something going on on the inside. There's some emotions being stirred. But emotions are not the point. They are supposed to point to something. They're supposed to direct us towards something. Emotions, like emotions are not the end. They're a means to an end. And this is the challenge because we haven't unpacked emotional vocabulary, because we haven't spent time learning how to understand what emotions are there for, we feel an emotion and therefore we respond. But emotions are like indicator lights on your dashboard. They're meant to tell you something about what's going on underneath the hood. When check engine light comes on, that's an emotion for your car. And it's meant to tell you, hey, explore this because there's more there. Emotions are pointing to something. And oftentimes what they're pointing to is underlying needs or unmet expectations. But because... Oftentimes, we respond to emotions. We don't interrogate them. We skip over the underlying needs or the unmet expectations, and we just plow through. And what happens is you bring a fully emotionally charged individual, and it's chaos, and then chaos leads to midyon. And the what becomes the who? Because you're emotionally kind of charged, and you're feeling all this coursing through your blood. Instead, he's trying to teach his son, hey, step back. As a husband, if you see this play out in your relationship with your wife or if you see this play out with your son or daughter or your roommate or your friend, hit time out and say, hey, what's going on? I'm sensing a lot of emotion right now. It seems you're really angry. Can you help me understand why? Instead of what happens is, right, when... It doesn't matter. You don't even have to know somebody. I mean, when you're driving down the road and someone calls you like, you know, a word I can't repeat on the stage and gives you one single finger. I don't know why one finger, why the longest finger is offensive. But for whatever reason, when someone waves at you with a really long finger, stuff happens on the inside. 
and you feel angry and you're like, they're a moron too. And you want, you tempted to wave back with that long finger. Right? I mean, because emotion tends to react and it tends to prompt more emotion. And he's like, time out. Chaos. Why is it there in the first place? Emotions are pointing to unmet needs. And when you have feelings because needs are met, this is what it feels like. Affectionate, confident, engaged, inspired, excited, exhilarated, grateful, hopeful, joyful, peaceful, refreshed. Those are all emotional states you feel when a need has been met. You may not even have been aware that there was a need. Maybe it was a need for connection. Maybe it was just a need to be loved. Maybe it was a need to be heard. Maybe it was a need for safety and security. Oftentimes what happens in financial moments that cause the breakdown is that there are underlying needs of safety and security and control that are devolving right and dissolving right in front of your eyes through your checkbook and you don't know what to do and all the emotion wells up in you because now you feel like your security and safety is being taken out from underneath you and none of us ever dream of living under a bridge covered up with a cardboard box like that is on none of our bucket list and yet we start to feel that need being violated and a strong emotional response spills out, but we're not sitting there saying, hey, sweetheart, I just want to tell you right now, I'm having really strong visual images of us living under a bridge together. And while I really like you, I really like you beside me in a bed, not a cardboard one. And I'm concerned that if we continue down this path of spending more than we make, that what's going to happen is we're going to get deeper and deeper in debt that we can't get out of. And we may end up living in a place that we don't want to live. And as great as it'll be to live there with you, I'm pretty sure that neither one of us would really be happy if that's the case. Like, no, we don't say all of that. We don't say, here's my need that's currently being violated. We lash out and we're like, what's your problem? I'm going to take your credit card from you. You obviously can't spend. Or you set up some kind of bill pay system inside your home or some kind of like, or hey, if you're going to spend more than $150, I want you to sit in this paperwork and fill it out and send it to me. And you're like, no, this is horrible. Why? But because there's this need being violated. So when you have an emotion, the best response is not a you made me feel, but a I feel sad or I feel scared with a because, right? Because you want to get to the need because emotions are indicators because I feel sad because our financial situation is exposing my need for safety and security. And I don't feel like we're very secure right now because we're just one blown tire or one sick child away from a really stressful situation. And I wake up in the mornings and that's all I think about is our financial situation. But what it's really doing inside of me is I don't feel safe. And so when you're able to unpack that, then you're able to say, so, and then you make a request, a specific solid request for what's going on in the midst. So could we talk about big purchases so that we're on the same page? It's the same exact same thing as you putting in purchase orders into your relationship, but it comes across a whole different way because you're saying, hey, let's talk through big purchases so that I feel safe and secure and you are also feeling whatever that purchase was aimed at, right? Because when you're not having your needs met, the feelings that come up are fear, 
annoyance, anger. You start to feel like you want to avoid certain people or certain conversations. There are some conversations, let's just be real. There are some conversations, romantically and non-romantic relationships. There are some conversations you won't go that you know you need to. Because it's so emotionally charged for you. It's so hot and it's so kind of just raging on the inside. But you haven't done the work of identifying the need that's underneath it. And every time you've tried in the past, it blows up. And so you're just, you just hold it. You won't talk about their habits. You won't talk about what they're doing on the weekends. You won't, you won't go to certain places. And we miss out on what relationships were meant to do for us. Embarrassed, disconnected, fatigued, sadness, vulnerability, tenseness. Those are all emotions that rise to the surface when your needs are not being met. And so it's really important when you fill a fill to know why it's there. It's, what's real is the need underneath. And you want to interrogate and figure out what that need is so that you can express that need and point. So let me give you a work example. So let's say your boss comes to you and they're like, it's like 4.45 p.m. on Friday. You've got a presentation Monday at 9 a.m. And they're like, hey, um, I was looking over your proposal. The proposal I sent you a week ago? Yeah, I, was just, I just got to it. So I was looking over it and there's a problem. We need to do some major edits. Um, this just isn't ready, okay? Now, you hear that, and what you feel is annoyance and anger and irritation. Why? Because you need some time off. You need some time to relax, right? Like, you've got these needs that are underneath the surface, and 4.45 p.m., and you know practically Monday at 9 a.m. is when this thing is supposed to go down from a presentation standpoint. You're feeling all this emotion, and it would be easy to lash out. It'd be easy to go all office space on them, but in reality, like, you have to be able to take a step back. Say, okay, what's going on here? Now, let me go back into this situation, and let me express it this way. So, um, I'm, I'm annoyed at the request, last minute change, you're a horrible boss, you stink, I'm finding a new job, I'm not working on this, I'm working on my resume, is not what you should say. <laughs> what you say instead is you're like, okay, what we both need, one of our core needs is we want to be in a job that's stable and that's financially secure, and so maybe the edits are good. So I say, look, um, okay, your edits are good, but... I know how much we value quality presentation, how much we value solid communication with our team. And so I think for, for us, reality of we're, we're down at the, the line on this thing, knowing that Monday morning, 9 a.m. is a presentation. I imagine you, like me, have a schedule filled this weekend with things that you can't get out of. So let's do this. Let's work together. What, edit, what edits do you think are the most important edits? What edits do you think we have time for? And let's tackle those together. Now, that's so much better than you're an idiot and I'm sending out my resume this weekend. I get that maybe you would say my boss wouldn't respond to that, but you don't know. You see, what he's trying to teach his son is he's trying to teach his son in the midst of relationships how you respond actually is the reason some of these things are created in the first place. It was not a warning to avoid the quarrelsome and nagging wife. It wasn't a warning to avoid that person out there. It was a warning to his son that he could be complicit in creating that type of environment in his house. 
that, son, the nagging wife is not her fault. It's your fault. You've created this type of environment where it's become adversarial, where the what is devolved into the who, and no one's being listened to. You just emotionally react. But the other part of this, I think, that's actually really inspirational is that Solomon was telling his young son this proverb to be memorized because what he wanted his son to internalize was the fact that he can work hard to create a relationship that doesn't become this. He's trying to teach his son, son, there's an option. You can live in the desert or you can live in an oasis. Which one do you want to have? And because relationships are hard, because you don't drift into great relationships, you have to work towards it. You have to work on it daily, diligently. This proverb was meant to light a fire inside of his son in those moments when he was feeling lazy, when he was wanting to kind of hit cruise control and let the relationship coast for a little bit because life was busy over here. It was a call to say, don't dare hit cruise control. Step back in because you're either building an oasis or you're building a desert. And son, which one do you want to live in? Because the beauty is, is you get to decide. This is one of the things I think is one of the most inspirational parts about relationships is that ultimately, if you don't like the relationship, it's your fault. You're plural. Jenny and I, this is a conversation we have. If we don't like our marriage, it's our fault. That's an empowering thing to say because it also means I have the power to create a great relationship. That no one, there is no government mandated policy, there is no local infrastructure, there is no house or car. None of those things are going to make this relationship great. But if we decide to make this relationship great, if we decide to build an oasis, then come hell or high water, we will have an oasis. Let the whole world burn around us and be consumed by the heat of those relational deserts. But we will live in a relationship where life flows, where water flows where we're refreshed and energized every time we come into each other's presence. That's the type of relationship that I want to build with my wife. That's the type of friendships I want to have with my friends. That's the type of relationship I want with my daughter and my future son. Because I recognize that the beauty of relationships is while they're hard, they're completely your responsibility to do something with it. And that there's no one else you can blame Because no one else builds great relationships except for you and the person in the relationship with you. And I recognize in the midst of that inspiration, for some of you, you may feel the tension of, well, you know what? That sounds nice, but it takes two to tango. I don't know what the tango is, but I get your point. And it's just me. What do I do with my son or my daughter? What do I do with my spouse? What do I do? with my coworkers. And I would encourage you to take your cue from what we see Jesus do. The cosmic level, we as humans in a broken relationship with God had no desire or intention for him. And how does God begin to build a great relationship with the people that he created that turned their backs on him? He pursued them. He took all the weight of the relationship on his shoulders And he stepped onto earth and he carried the relationship long enough 
for it to become a relationship between you and him. He pursued you and me even when we didn't want to be pursued. And that for some of you, what it may mean in this season with your, with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers, is it may mean that for a season you shoulder the weight of that relationship because you're pursuing, you're modeling, you're going after, you're not falling into the traps or the midyons or the kaases. You're, you're, you're taking that step. And like Jesus, you're loving, you're serving, and you're showing up and you're listening. And there is a power that happens when you listen, when you show up. And yeah, ultimately, there is a responsibility on them. But I'm saying that my life was changed because a God chased after me because he showed up. He loved me even when I wasn't interested in loving him. And amazing things have happened in relationships when one person took the cue from Jesus and did what he did. And said, you know what? It'd be really nice if you picked up a shovel and helped build an oasis, but I can at least get started on one. And maybe the heat out there will eventually start to make you sweat enough to realize that, oh, we could have something different inside of here. And that in the midst that you and I, maybe even just you right now, all of us can begin to move towards the the oasis that God desired for us to have in our lives. And for us to step out of the deserts that we were never intended to live in in the first place. Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us. Did you know we've created a free app just for you? Whether you are exploring or want to grow in your faith, the app is a great place to start. If you found today's teaching helpful, we hope you'll subscribe or share it with your friends. We look forward to connecting with you on site or online at Encounter Church soon.